It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 356 for August 18th, 2013. This week, if you're looking for the one perfect portable computing device that suits every need, my recommendation is to forget about it. The problem with trying to use a computer to find a Wi-Fi hotspot is that you need to be connected to a Wi-Fi hotspot to use an online service to find Wi-Fi hotspots. In short circuits, some investors are suing Microsoft as the company readies Windows 8.1 for release in October. Cisco's profits are up, so the CEO has announced that now is a great time to fire about 4,000 people. And the New York Times website was offline for several hours on Wednesday. The smoking gun seems to be located at 628th Avenue in Manhattan. That's the Times building. A fool's errand. Sir Walter Scott coined that term in 1821 in the first chapter of Kenilworth, If I were to travel, only that I might be discontented with that which I can get at home, methinks I should but go on a fool's errand. A fool's errand. That could be an apt description of my attempt to find the perfect portable computing device. Apparently such a thing does not exist. That doesn't mean I'm giving up, though. I've always secretly wished that somebody would build a lens that would cover a range of focal lengths from 10 to 2,000 millimeters at f1.8, weigh less than a pound, be less than 5 inches long, and cost about 200 bucks. If somebody succeeded in building such a lens, and I'm really pretty sure that there are several laws of physics that would have to be broken to do that, well, if somebody could do it, the lens would probably weigh several hundred pounds, be about the size of a smart car, and cost about as much as a brand new battleship. So, in other words, I'm kind of familiar with fool's errands. Portable computing devices come in lots of sizes and form factors. There are the tiny ones, the phones, small devices like 7-inch tablets, medium, the 10- to 12-inch tablets, netbooks, which are mainly dead at this point, and large notebooks, and the rumored gigantic tablets that are supposedly coming. The trouble is that they're all good for something, but none of them fits into that mythical space where my previously mentioned lens would fit, satisfying all needs for every person. So, to continue torturing this comparison, just as I found that the only solution to the lens problem is to have several lenses, the solution to the portable computing problem seems to involve possessing several portable computing devices. While a phone might be adequate for tasks such as reading and responding to an email, checking the time a film is scheduled to start, or finding the closest pizza place, it really doesn't work very well when it comes to reading a large Word or Excel document or a book. The various tablets are good choices for reviewing Word and Excel documents, or reading books, or using applications like Google Earth, but they're ineffective if you need to make substantive changes to a Word or Excel document or write a letter, or to perform any task that calls for a keyboard or mouse. Just entering a password that contains upper and lowercase letters, numbers, and punctuation is torturous on a virtual keyboard. 
Today's notebook computers have sufficient power and performance that many people use them to replace desktop computers. These things can handle just about any task thrown at them, but they're not particularly portable. They are, however, a lot more portable than the first portable computers, such as the 30-pound compact that had to be plugged in. This is portable? You'll find a picture of one of those old things on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So there's kind of a battle for superiority going on here. I've been using a Kindle reader for a number of years, and it has proved to be an excellent choice for the one job that it does well, display ebooks. I carry it to the gym to use when I'm on stationary equipment, but it really doesn't do anything else. An Android tablet with an optional keyboard seemed like a good choice because I could load the Kindle Reader, and I could also use it for web browsing and email via Wi-Fi connections, but it turned out to be so slow and so buggy that it took nearly six months to make it work acceptably. And after that, I swore I would never buy another Asus device. For me, the next step was an Acer Iconia Windows 8 tablet, and it is by far the most versatile device I own. The tablet has a large screen, runs Windows 8 on a 64-bit processor, and has sufficient RAM and solid-state disk storage. A separate keyboard allows me to use it for light editing, and a USB port makes it possible to attach a small hub for a mouse and a thumb drive. The only downside is that it's a little heavy to hold when I'm reading a book. I've talked about this device previously, and it continues to be one of my favorite portable devices. A variant on the Windows 8 tablet is already being made by some manufacturers, a tablet with a built-in keyboard. That makes the tablet nearly the equivalent of a small ultralight notebook computer. This convertible design represents a technology that I think is going to be extremely popular over the next few years. But many people consider tablets to be too large to carry around the office or on a shopping trip. Phones are too small for many tasks, but smaller tablets might be just exactly right. Tablets like the Google Nexus 7. Google has just released a second-generation Nexus 7. It's made by Asus. I bought one anyway. The competition for the Nexus 7 is, of course, the iPad Mini. I didn't even consider that because of its much higher price. The Nexus 7 with 32 gigabytes of memory costs less than $300. The iPad Mini costs quite a bit more than $400. If you need cellular internet service, the Nexus model will sell for about $350 when it's available. That compares to about $560 for the Apple version. The original Nexus did not have a rear-facing camera. The second-generation Nexus does. It's a 5-megapixel camera. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But it turns out to be a really good example of megapixels not telling the entire story. The camera is, at best, mediocre. The new model also has stereo speakers, and the sound is surprisingly good for such a small device. Oh, and the screen display? Absolutely marvelous. Sharp, clear, colorful. Google says the actual screen resolution is 323 dots per inch. Keep in mind that most desktop and notebook screens have a resolution of about 100 dpi. You will see the difference. And speed? Yeah, wow. Various published tests suggest that the Nexus 7 is the fastest device in its class, and I believe that. Battery life is surprisingly good for a device with a quad processor. Yes, a quad processor. And the resulting display, because of the quad processor, that performance is astounding. 
The operating system is version 4.3, the Android Jelly Bean operating system. It has improved significantly from the version 3 that's on my Asus Transformer. Apps do still crash, and they crash all too often. But the crashes usually take down just the app and not the entire operating system. And the whole thing weighs just a little more than half a pound. Ten ounces, if you want to get exact. But Google really does need to encourage those who develop apps for the Android to clearly delineate between apps that work on phone-sized devices and those that are intended for tablets. Apps that depend on features found on phones but not on tablets may fail to work at all, and often will fail to work properly if they do work. It's frustrating to download and install something that you think will be useful, only to be told when you try to run it that it cannot run on a tablet. The basic features, such as reading books with the Kindle application or checking email with K9, which is, I think, the best mail application I've seen for Android, watching YouTube videos or viewing websites, all of those are absolutely solid. You'll find a bunch of pictures on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and as you can tell from my main menu screen, there are lots of applications that run on an Android tablet, such as the Nexus 7. My preferred email application, K9, more about that in a moment. But I also have the Gmail app. Both Firefox and Chrome have Android versions. Although Facebook is available via the browser, there's also a specific app for Facebook and a separate page manager. The camera app controls the mediocre camera, after which Instagram or the gallery take over. I can use an FTP client to move images to a location that's accessible from home, or I can email the photos to myself, or I could just plug the USB charging cable from the Nexus 7 into a port on my PC and download the images from there, if I wanted to use any of them, but they're usually such low quality that I don't. Skype allows me to make phone calls and even do video conferences on the tablet. It uses the Wi-Fi connection because uh, the tablet isn't a phone, it's just a tablet. And OneNote, the Microsoft OneNote application, there's an app that runs on Android, and it is indispensable. Uh, more about that in a little bit, too. Pinterest, Tumblr, YouTube, Pulse, these are primarily used for entertainment. Maps and Google Earth have some overlap, but I consider each to be useful, so they're both installed. The Scanner app allows me to listen to airplanes, trains, police departments, fire departments all over the world. Pandora and Spotify tune in internet radio stations and also play any music that I've installed locally. MailChimp gives me direct access to the service that sends the weekly TechBiter newsletter. Kindle, Nook, and Play Books all provide a way to read free and purchased books and magazines. The Play Store and Amazon are sources of additional content. And there's an Office Suite. It's an app that makes it possible to view files from most Microsoft Office applications. I have a link to the weather forecast, a shopping list, a barcode and QR scanner, and a calculator. And all of these are on a single page of the menu. The icons you'll see at the bottom of the screen are present regardless of which menu screen I'm on, and the tablet has five menu screens. The section at the bottom is where you'd put apps that you want to have available at all times. So I've placed an FTP client there, Wikipedia, WikiHow, LastPass, the password manager, a Wi-Fi locator, and the setup function. And in the middle, there's the default All Apps icon. So if you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, I'll give you a little tour of some of the things that are running on my Nexus 7 tablet. There's a Wi-Fi finder displaying available free and paid Wi-Fi hotspots in downtown Columbus. And I can also run an app that listens for Wi-Fi signals and tells me what the SSID is. 
And then you'll see Google Now. This is a new feature, and it's one that you might consider to be incredibly useful or distressingly creepy. If you allow the Nexus 7 to identify your location, it will watch where you go and when. It will build information about your schedule. It will then attempt to offer you useful information. Accessing Google Now uses the main menu button, but instead of tapping it, you just swipe it upwards. This tells Google Now to display whatever cards it feels are appropriate, and each card displays a certain kind of information. You'll probably see the weather forecast almost all the time. Possibly, you'll see an estimate for how long it will take you to drive your normal route to work. This is based on the current time and current traffic. If you're a sports fan, you can see some recent scores. In other words, Google knows what you're going to be looking for before you start looking for it. Using Google Now turns on location reporting and location history. If you've also turned on Google's location service and GPS, that information is used along with information that you've stored in other Google and non-Google products. Searches, website history, your Google Calendar, for example. Now, if this creeps you out, just turn it off. But if you're a realist who recognizes that privacy has been little more than an illusion or a facade for decades, you might enjoy using it. The service will remind you of birthdays, flight times, stock prices, and nearby events. It can display information about packages when you receive a shipping or delivery notice, restaurant reservations, information about new music or books that might interest you. If you're near a popular spot where tourists take photos, Google Now will remind you of that. The list is very long, and Google probably isn't anywhere near finished developing it yet. And, of course, there's the Google Calendar. Nothing particularly remarkable about it. As you would expect, it synchronizes with your online version of the Google Calendar, which is handy. And, as I mentioned, if you use Google Now, it links to the calendar to provide timely information. I mentioned Microsoft's OneNote, and you'll see the Android version on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This is the organizer I use to keep track of what's coming up on future editions of the program. And because I store OneNote files on SkyDrive, I have immediate access to the latest information whenever I'm within range of a Wi-Fi connection, or a wired internet connection for that matter. Any changes I make will be reflected on the desktop or notebook computers where OneNote is installed. Unfortunately, though, the Android app is not able to open any pages that are secured with a password. And I'll show you my FTP application called AndFTP. Maybe everybody doesn't need an FTP client, but I use FTP servers to handle large files that I don't want to transfer via email. And there are lots of ways to store and transfer files these days, and I could certainly perform some of those functions automatically with one of the many cloud-based storage services. In some ways, this is kind of like driving a stick shift car. Although I do use those automatic cloud-based storage functions for some files, there are other files that don't need to be updated constantly. So I upload those manually, and only when I explicitly want to update them. So, and FTP is available in a free version, but I paid a few bucks to license the full version. I did that because it handles all of the various secure FTP protocols, and because the developers have created a surprisingly clever interface that takes into account the extremely limited real estate on a small tablet. 
Android devices come with an app called Mail, and you can use the Gmail app if you're a Gmail fan. I have my own domains and several addresses, so a better solution for me is a true email program. And K9 Mail is the best mail client I have found for Android devices. It really acts like an email client on a larger system. And because it can be set to use the IMAP protocol instead of POP3, it's really helpful. The explanation for why this is my preference depends on understanding the differences between Post Office Protocol, or POP, and the Internet Message Access Protocol, or IMAP. The primary difference is that POP downloads messages to the computer, while IMAP accesses messages on the server. My primary desktop computer is set to use POP so that messages are downloaded there for permanent storage. The tablet and other portable devices use IMAP because it eliminates the need to routinely delete messages from the portable email readers. Because of time considerations, that's a highly truncated explanation of the process. If you'd like to hear more about email management strategies and POP versus IMAP, let me know and I'll put together a program on it. Oh, and I mentioned the camera is mediocre. You'll see an example of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Be sure you click the small image of the cat and look at the somewhat larger image. And keep in mind that it's still only about half the size of the image that comes out of the camera. But even at this reduced size, you can see luminance noise and a lot of chrominance noise. Look particularly in the shadows by the cat's ear for some particularly egregious chrominance noise. Now, what this tells me is that the sensor is tiny, but you'd expect that in a small device such as this. Small sensors are noisy, and this sensor is very noisy. So if you want a good picture, don't use the camera that's in just about any tablet. Now, on the other hand, the best possible camera is the one you have handy. Shortly after taking a picture of the sleeping Percy, I noticed that one of Percy's claws was stuck. Now, only Percy could get a claw stuck in a blanket while lying on his back and stretching. I was able to get the picture of him in that position because I had the tablet in my hand. If I had retrieved the SLR from across the room, I would have obtained a much higher quality picture. But by then, Percy would have managed to extricate his claw, and he would no longer have looked like a cat in the middle of a feline holdup. So the bottom line here is if you're looking for the one ideal portable computing device, good luck. I haven't been able to find one, and I really don't expect to. Our needs and our desires are simply so diverse that no single device is likely to suffice for everybody and for all tasks. Much as today's cameras come with lenses that cover a much wider range than they did in the past, you might find a device that's suitable for a range of your activities, but you're probably still going to need the computing equivalent of that super-wide or extra-long telephoto lens, at least occasionally. If you're traveling or just wandering around town, you might need a Wi-Fi hotspot. Finding one would be easy if you were online because you could use a service such as JIWire's directory. But if you're already online, you don't need to find a Wi-Fi hotspot. A phone with cellular access plan could give you access to a directory such as the one JIWire provides. But if you have a Wi-Fi-only device, you're probably out of luck. Or are you? Well, actually, no. What you need is a war-driving tool. 
War driving involves searching for open Wi-Fi networks, typically by somebody in a moving vehicle and by using a notebook computer, a smartphone, or some other portable device. It used to be considered questionable ethically because so many people and businesses unknowingly left their connections open. Now, most people who have Wi-Fi access points that they want to remain private know enough to protect them. The software developed for war driving is now frequently used to find open Wi-Fi connections that are intentionally open, but they're also used by network administrators to identify security problems. There are applications such as NetStumbler, Insider, HeatMapper, and the WarDrive Toolbox for Windows computers, and other tools for Macs and Linux computers. In general, though, these tools are relatively complex, and some of them are available only as paid applications following a trial period. The WarDrive Toolbox, for example, includes a media access control address spoofing, wireless LAN configuration toggling, tests to explore new connections, a packet sniffer to view all traffic on the network, and a bunch of networking tools. Network technicians, criminals, and the National Security Agency might want these. But the average person who's looking for a Wi-Fi connection just needs to know the service set identification, the SSID, and maybe a couple of other small facts. And for that, all you need is a free tool such as the Wi-Fi Info Viewer from Nearsoft. Developer Nearsofer writes small, easy-to-use utilities that do just what they're supposed to do and usually don't even require installation. Just unzip a file and use the executable. That means that Sofer's applications can often be copied to a thumb drive and run from there. In this case, and you'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the Wi-Fi Info Viewer displays the network name, the SSID, the MAC address, the PHY type, such as 802.11G or 802.11N. It gives you the signal strength and quality of the signal, tells you the frequency, the channel number, the maximum speed of the connection, manufacturer of the Wi-Fi router, its model number, the router name for routers that have names, and some do, and a lot more. And that's really all you need. Even better, it's free. You'll find a link to the Nearsoft website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. short circuits, Microsoft has announced the 8.1 update for Windows will be available starting October 19th. The update probably won't silence those who feel that any change from Microsoft is a bad change, and it certainly isn't going to placate a gang of investors that it's filed suit against Microsoft, claiming that the company has been hiding losses related to its Surface RT tablet. If you're a Windows 8 user, the upgrade will be a free download. So far, sales of Windows 8 have been lower than anticipated, in part because so many computer pundits seem to fear change and have transferred that fear to home and office buyers. But there are other reasons. The low sales are partly a result of the trend toward handheld devices. Because people have been spending money on these smaller devices, some have delayed buying a new desktop or notebook computer. A public preview of Windows 8.1 was made available in June, and it will continue to be available until October 19th, but I don't recommend installing it on any machine that you actively use for work or play, because if you do, 
The eventual upgrade to the full 8.1 version will require a clean installation. You'll have to delete everything, format the drive, and start over. The update, on the other hand, will install properly over the, an existing version 8 installation, so wait for the update is my advice. A somewhat related class action suit filed in Massachusetts says that Microsoft has hidden losses related to the Surface RT tablet. The RT is the tablet that appears to be running Windows 8, but actually runs a special version of Windows that can't power traditional Windows programs. Last month, Microsoft reported its quarterly earnings and took a $900 million write-off for inventory adjustments and its recent 30% price cut made to boost sales of the RT. The suit says that Microsoft materially misrepresented the true financial effect that the tablet was having on the company's business and that it failed to tell investors about the excess inventory of Surface RT tablets. After Microsoft released the earnings statement, the company's stock fell 8%, wiped out about $20 billion worth of market value. The suit seeks to recover damages for shareholders who invested between April 18th and July 18th of this year. According to the suit, failing to alert shareholders was a violation of generally accepted accounting principles as well as SEC rules and regulations. In a spate of somewhat over-the-top grandiloquence, the law firm Robbins, Geller, Rudman, and Dowd wrote, and I quote, What defendants knew but failed to disclose to investors, however, was that Microsoft's foray into the tablet market was an unmitigated disaster, which left it with a large accumulation of excess, overvalued Surface RT inventory. Defendants' materially false and misleading conduct enabled Microsoft to forestall Surface RT RT's day of reckoning and delay what would have been tantamount to an admission by the company that its all-important entry into the tablet market had been a failure. End quote. Perhaps the judge will be impressed by unmitigated disaster, the somewhat redundant large accumulation of excess, tantamount, and forestall. Looks like somebody at the law firm owns a thesaurus. Systems plans to lay off about 5% of its workforce because of what the company describes as a challenging global economic climate. The announcement was made at the same time that Cisco announced its fourth quarter earnings, which were better than expected. It's middle managers that CEO John Chambers is gunning for. In a conference call with investors this week, Chambers said, we've got to take out middle-level management. What he meant by that, Chambers said, is that the company needs to implement new procedures and develop products faster. By eliminating middle managers, Chambers believes that Cisco can react more quickly to changing economic conditions. While a 5% cut in employment might not seem like a lot, when the company employs 80,000 people, 5% is 4,000 jobs, 4,000 employees, 4,000 families. 
Cisco reported earnings of $2.27 billion in the fourth quarter. That's about $0.42 cents a share. Last year, Cisco earned $1.92 billion in the fourth quarter, about $0.36 cents a share. Cisco sells networking software and services, telephone and video conferencing systems, and other hardware that's used throughout business and industry. About every day at lunch, I sit down with a copy of the New York Times on a Windows 8 tablet, but on Wednesday, the site just wasn't there. A momentary glitch, I thought, but pressing the refresh button simply refreshed the error message. The site still wasn't back when I finished lunch, but by that time, CNN, CNBC, and other news outlets were reporting the outage. A cyber attack, possibly? Actually, no. Earlier this year, the newspaper charged that Chinese hackers had infiltrated the company's internal network to seek reporters' usernames and passwords, and that hackers were actively and repeatedly attacking the newspaper's website. The failure on Wednesday, though, was not related to those attacks. The website went offline shortly after 11 a.m. and wasn't back until after 1 p.m., and then only sporadically. The Times would be an attractive target, of course, but this really wasn't the case. As an article by Noam Cohen in Thursday's edition noted, the site went dark moments after a scheduled maintenance update was pushed out. It wasn't until 3 p.m. on Wednesday that the site had stabilized sufficiently that new articles could be posted. The outage was a big event on Twitter, and Cohen noted a tweet by Ezra Klein of the Washington Post What, you thought Jeff Bezos was going to buy the Post and play defense? Going around the website, the editors and writers for the opinion section of the newspaper started posting updates to Twitter. Cohen noted the failure was reminiscent of a power blackout. And as it happens, Wednesday was the 10th anniversary of that big East Coast blackout. Cohen's full article, and it's a pretty enjoyable article, is on the New York Times website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com I'm Bill Blinn and if you'd like you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.